0: Welcome to the Viewpoint Podcast Network. We are a young adults group at Valley View Bible Church in Paradise Valley, Arizona. We meet Thursday nights at 7 o'clock. Find us on Instagram at viewpoint underscore vvbc for more info on how to get connected. So, if you were here last week, that means you were here for the kickoff of our uh, series in James. A couple of the things we talked about in, in James chapter 1 is that he says to count it all joy when you experience trials of various kinds. He encourages us to ask for wisdom, to be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, and to be doers of the word, not hearers. Uh, one of the things you'll notice as we go through this study, maybe you picked up on it last week, is that James heavily mimics the Proverbs and the Sermon on the Mount. So we're going to be looking uh, some weeks more in the Proverbs, some weeks more in uh, the Book of Matthew, but we're going to be bouncing back and forth between uh, between the two. So in James chapter two, verses one through seven, it says, "My brothers." So James chapter uh, 2, verses 1-7 through seven right here, he talks, uh, maybe if you've grown up in the church, you've heard this topic a lot. He says, show no partiality. What that means is saying, show no favoritism. And so the problem here is, is he's comparing the rich and the poor. What would often happen would be those who were rich, those who were well-known, the Pharisees, the scribes, maybe the rulers of the area, would come into the synagogues, come into the churches, and they were treated with favor uh with uh, uh as favorites. Uh people were biased, they would give them the best seat in the house, they would do this, they would take care of them, and the poor man, the homeless man, uh the man who had nothing would come into the house and they would ignore him. They would pay no attention, they might say hi, and that was the extent of the conversation. Last week we read chapter uh, uh one, verses nine through eleven, says let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with his, its scorching heat and withers uh, uh, the, the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. And in verse 27 of chapter 1, it says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So again, uh, uh, as we said last week, chapter 1 covers everything that he's going to talk about in chapters 2 through 5. So likely we're going to be bouncing back up to what we talked about last week. Again, in, in chapter 1 we talked about how uh, James says, Riches pass, beauty perishes. Ultimately, it is the soul that remains. Ultimately, it is the soul that spends eternity with Christ. Or he spends eternity in hell. It is the soul that will remain when everything here has gone away. Riches will pass, beauty will perish, but the soul remains. In verse 27 of chapter one, uh, uh, he talks about widows and orphans. A true widow was someone who had uh, was a woman whose husband was dead and they had no kids, specifically no sons, which meant she had no one to take care of them. Back in this ancient culture, women didn't own land. So if there was no husband and no sons of hers, it meant she had nowhere to go. She was homeless, she was poor, and often looked down upon and cast out by the rest of society. This is why James emphasizes uh, to take care of widows and orphans. They were the ones who were poor, and often they were the ones with the shabby clothing, coming into these uh, home churches Desperate to hear about a God who gives. Desperate to hear about a God who saves. And when they would come in, they were reached not with warmth, kindness, and generosity, but with cold shoulders, and they would be shunned and looked down upon. (coughs) Again, James warns about discriminating against the poor. The last verse that he says uh, right before this, he says that religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So to show partiality means you do not have a religion that is pure and undefiled. It means that you are impure and defiled by the world. It means that what you are doing, what you are believing is is not true because the Gospel is a Gospel that loves. The Gospel is a Gospel that welcomes doesn't matter of social class, doesn't matter of if they're one of the cool, popular kids, doesn't matter of how much stuff they have. The gospel welcomes all. And in verse 3, he says, uh, uh, You say to the poor man, sit down at my feet. This this imagery of sitting down at my feet, that is the place where a servant would sit at the feet. Jesus, we, we study the life of Jesus and how he washed the disciples' feet like a servant. And servants would sit at the feet of the homeowner and wash their feet and take care of them. So to give the poor man the place of the servant is not right. You're giving them the worst spot instead of giving up your chair saying, hey, sit here. Hey, you are welcome here. Hey, you are cared about here. Scripture tells us to humble ourselves and lift others and if we're treating others like a servant, if we're treating others like I am their master, like I am better than them, I, I treat them like an outcast, like a leper. I don't talk to them because the, uh, uh, I can't find any interest with them. I, whatever the reason may be. I'm not living out the way the Gospel has called me to live. To welcome others, to not show partiality. And in verse 4, it says, Have you not then made distinctions amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? He says this very heavily. You become judges with evil thoughts. You become judges with thoughts that are like the devil. Why? Because to be evil is the opposite of God. God is full of goodness and kindness and mercy. And so if your thoughts are evil thoughts, your thoughts are in line with the enemy. Your, li- your thoughts are in line with Satan. You are against God in your evil thoughts. That's heavy to say, but I, I want you guys to hear the weight of what James is saying here. In Matthew chapter 7, in-, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? And John 7 says, uh, verse 24 says, Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. <coughs> How many of us have heard of someone or ourselves said, Only God can judge me. Anyone here heard that before? See a couple head nods, a couple hands. So what does this mean, only God can judge me? You know, people hear these uh, uh, verses and say, oh, you can't judge me because Scripture says, so let me differentiate what it means to judge with evil thoughts versus judge with right judgment. Because John 7, uh, 24 says, judge with right judgment. What is the difference there? To judge with evil thoughts means, oh, I see this person with uh, neck tattoos, with all these body piercings. I see this person with uh, baggy pants and... I start to look down upon them. I start to say, oh, God can't save them. Oh, I'm not going to waste my time talking to them and sharing the Gospel with them. Those, That is to judge with evil thoughts. To judge with right judgment means to go up to your brother and your sister in Christ and say, hey, you are judging with evil thoughts. To call one another out in love, in righteousness, in correction. Calling one another out saying, hey, you are not living the way the Gospel has called you to live. That is what it means to judge with right judgments. means to call each other out as opposed to judging with evil thoughts. Meaning you think you're better than everyone else because uh, you're living like a Pharisee. Because you're doing this, because you're doing that. In verse 5, it says, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? What he has promised to those who love him. Matthew 5, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who are poor in spirit, says theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So if I'm showing partiality to those who are poor, who, those who I consider less than, I'm showing partiality and I'm not living out the gospel because the gospel says, Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know, I've been around the world. Some of you know this. I've been to India. I've been to Zambia. I've been to Tanzania, Mexico, all on missions trips. And some of the people I find that are richest in Christ would be deemed poor by American standards. I go to Zambia where they have nothing. They're living out of clay huts. They're farming. They're doing this. They're doing that. They have no Wi-Fi. No television. Are some of the richest people in Christ that I've ever met? They are filled with the joy of the Lord, and yet here in America, where we have all this stuff, all these comforts, we have nice couches, we have AC in the in the hot summer, we have the heaters in the cool uh, uh, cool winter, we're not we're so self-righteous we 're so uh, uh, fed up, and yet we think we're better than them because we have all this stuff. We think we're wiser than them. We think we're more knowledgeable than them. But I tell you that it is they who are rich in, in, in the Spirit. And this is why it says there's uh, to show no partiality because there's no partiality in the Gospel. Christ shows no partiality. He died for the sins of all. Not for some. Not for those who tithed and donated a certain amount. Not for those who, who, who went to Bible college versus those who didn't. Christ died once for all. In the last verse here, (coughs) James says that that it is the rich who oppress you, the rich who dishonor you, who drag you into court. It is the rich who blaspheme the name of Christ. In in, uh, uh, the time of James, this is one of the primary reasons that there were revolts in Galilee that led to the war against Rome in 66-70 to A.D. Because they were being oppressed. And so the people that James is talking to, they, they are treating the rich with favor and the poor unfavorably, yet it was the rich who was oppressing them. The rich who was dishonoring them. The rich who dragged you into court. And the rich who blasphemed the name of Christ. And it's not much different in today's world. And turn on the TV, listen to the radio and listen to the music that rappers and singers and artists are saying about God, cursing His name. Turn on the, uh, the news and just watch what is poured out. What does Scripture say about Christ? It says in Mark 10:45, "For even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many." So what do the rich? Do they oppress? They dishonor? They drag you into court? They blaspheme? They treat unfavorably? And what does Christ do? Though He is holy and righteous enough for us to serve His every need, He served us. He washed the disciples' feet. He gave the example and He gave His life for a ransom as a ransom for many. He laid His life down. And so again, here James is talking the rich versus the poor, but how are we doing this here on Thursday nights at Viewpoint? How are we doing this on Sundays at Valley View Bible Church or wherever you're going to church on a Sunday? How are we doing this in our everyday lives at GCU? Are we hanging out with the same people, talking to the same people, the cool people, the in crowd? Do we notice who's sitting at GCBC by themselves? Do we notice who's walked into the room and no one says hi to? Who, in fact, maybe not even no one says hi to. Everyone goes to a void. Are we talking to that person? Are we seeking them out? Are we giving them the best seat in the house? Or are we saving that for the rich, for our favorites, for our friends? Are we inviting new people to come sit beside us on Sunday? After church, are we looking for new people to go and say hi to? Are we talking to them? Are we seeking them out? Are we seeking out the lost, the brokenhearted, the widowed, the orphan? This is what Scripture has called us to do. This is what Christ set the example to do. Who did He have dinners with? He had dinners with sinners, tax collectors, and prostitutes. Who do we have dinners with? Who do we have dinners with? And I'm not saying this like I am high and mighty, like I am better than you. I I struggle with this too. We all struggle with this. It, it is common in our culture to struggle with this, to say, oh no, I'm just going to hang out with my same Christian circle and I'm never going to branch out and share the Gospel with the, the people that need it. To reach out to them. I didn't do the research, but what, what are the stats on, on depression and anxiety right now? What are the stats on, on, on the widow, the orphan? Kids growing up without dads. Kids growing up without moms. Are we seeking out after them? Are we looking after them? They're all around GCU. They're GCU does a great job providing opportunities to serve. Refugee program, the, the, the homeless ministry. They have ministries for everything. And when was the last time one of us went to those? To serve. To love. To pour into the community that we are around. And again, I'm guilty of this myself. Even when I went to GCU. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Christ came to give His life. And I ask, are we giving ours? Let's continue in verses 8. 8-13 says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, You have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. In Romans 13, verses 8 through 10, it says, Own no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. How many times does Scripture say, love your neighbor as yourself, love God, love others. These are the two greatest commandments. The first is to love God. The second is to love others. And if we show partiality, we do not love. We do not love our neighbor. If we do not love our neighbor, we are not loving God. If we murder, we do not love. If we commit adultery, we do not love. If we steal, we do not love. If we covet, we do not love. And if we judge others with evil thoughts, we do not love. And it says right here, if you're guilty of one, you're guilty of all. If you're guilty of one sin in your entire life and live the rest of it out perfectly, you are guilty of it all. And what does it say? Uh, uh, What is the wages of sin? Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The wages of sin is death. If you've committed one sin, you've committed them all. Your wages, what you are owed, is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's why James says, so speak and so act as those under the law of liberty. In this last chapter, chapter 1, verse 25, it says the perfect law. This is the law of freedom. Freedom of what? Freedom of sin. Freedom of bondage. Freedom of slavery to sin. And I love verse 13 because it summarizes 1 through 12 and it's a, a, a perfect transition to the second half of this chapter, verses 14 through 26. It says, judgment without mercy to one with no mercy. He says there, uh, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. How many of us have the Lord's Prayer memorized on our hearts? If I were to start, we could all, I'm sure, pick it up. But how many of us know the verses right after the Lord's Prayer in Matthew six fourteen and fifteen says Jesus says, "For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses." That's a tough statement. If you want to be forgiven, then forgive. If you uh, uh, want to be loved, then love. That's what Christ is saying. It says if you want to be forgiven, then forgive. And if you don't, you won't. Mercy triumphs over judgment. These are harsh sayings. But don't take my word for it. Take Scriptures. In Zechariah chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. And that none of you devise evil against another in your heart. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 7 says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. <coughs> one of the parables Jesus shares is the parable of the unforgiving servant. If you're unfamiliar, let me tell you, it is the parable of, of this, this servant who owed his master a large sum of money. Well, I'm going to make up numbers here. He owed his master $5 million. Actually, it's probably more than that. He owed his master an unpayable sum. He owed his master $5 billion. And he could not pay it. And the master came up to him and said, hey, I forgive you. You don't have to pay that debt. You don't owe me anything. And the unforgiving servant went to another servant who owed him ten bucks. And he said, you owe me this ten dollars. And he beat him up and forced the guy to pay. And when the master heard this, he came down uh, uh, with with this anger and this fury towards the unforgiving servant. He said, I have forgiven you of this large sum you owed against me. And this other servant had just ten dollars And you couldn't forgive him? Do you not understand what I did to you? And he made him pay. He forced him to work. He punished him. He said, fine, you don't want to forgive others of their debts after I've forgiven you? Then you must pay your own debt. You must pay this unpayable debt to Me. And it is a difficult Scripture because that's what happens. Christ has forgiven us this unpayable debt And yet we we judge others with evil thoughts. We judge others with evil intents. Think we're holier than them and refuse to forgive people who have hurt us because they've wronged us, because I'm in pain. And Christ says, no, I have forgiven you of everything that you have done. You are deserving of hell. You do one sin. What do you deserve? You deserve death. And you can't go forgive that one person who made you feel bad for a little bit. Seriously that that's what Christ that's what it's like. And Christ says, "No, forgive because you have forgiven. You have been forgiven. Love because you have been loved. Stop showing partiality. Stop thinking that you're better than others that you're more righteous than them. Get off your high horse." He says, "Mercy triumphs over judgment. Forgiveness triumphs over Judgment. Grace triumphs over judgment. And if that that grace, that mercy, that forgiveness triumphs over judgment for us, let it triumph over uh, 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 judgment towards others. So we continue. Verses 14-17 through says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Here comes one of the most famous statements in in the book of James. There's a lot of these, but here's one of the uh, more popular ones. Is Faith without works is dead. It is useless. It is nothing. It can't do anything. Faith without works can't do anything. It is dead. It is useless. Let's, let's compare a couple verses. Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9 says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. People like to look at these two passages and a handful of others. I didn't want to pull them all up because there's a, there's a lot. But people look at these passages and say, oh, they contradict. Paul says, uh, uh, it is not by works that you are saved. But James says, faith without works is dead. So obviously the Bible contradicts itself, but that's not what's happening here. James is saying James understands and he acknowledges that works do not save you. They are not the basis of your salvation, but they are the necessary result. Works are the necessary result of your faith, of your salvation, of what has been done to you. So I ask, do you have mercy? Do you have love and forgiveness? Or do you judge with evil thoughts and do you show partiality? What do the, the fruits in your life look like? Are you giving love and grace and mercy? Or are you giving wrath and anger and evil thoughts and partiality? Here's the thing, guys. Hearing leads to believing, and believing leads to doing. That is the natural result. That is the natural flow of things. Those are not my words. Those are the words of Scripture. I encourage you to not be like the unforgiving servant. You've been forgiven a great sum. Go and forgive others. Those are the words James is talking about. He says, hey, are you showing partiality? Because Christ didn't show partiality when He died on the cross for your sins. Are you judging others? Are you taking care of others? Because Christ took care of you He paid the debt. He offers you life and forgiveness. He offers to be your your refuge, your shelter, your friend, your Father. He's a friend to the friendless and a Father to the fatherless. Are we doing anything like that in our own lives that models what Christ has done to us? If someone says they have faith but they do not have works, That person, that person should question whether or not they are saved. If someone, if you have faith but you do not have works, you should question whether or not you are saved. Reading the ESV Study Bible, and that is what it said. You don't like my words. These are the words of Scripture. These are the words of scholars and theologians. These are the words of Scripture itself. Works are a result of faith they do not save you but they're the natural result that is the fruit james even understands this he said says in verse 18 but someone will say you have faith and i have works show me your faith apart from your works and i will show you my faith by my works he understands people are going to question his teaching he anticipates these questions He says, hey, people aren't going to listen to what I have to say. They're not going to like it. It sounds too harsh, too mean. And he he says, people will challenge that. In verse 17, he says, faith apart from works is useless. So he said once already, faith apart from works is dead. And now he says a second time, faith apart from works is useless. If you don't believe me, let's read in Revelation what Christ says to the church of Laodicea. He says, I know your works, and you are neither cold nor hot, so because you are lukewarm, I will spit you out of My mouth. That is Christ's feelings towards lukewarmness, towards faith without works. It detests Him. He spits you out. Again, these are the words of Scripture. It is tough... And it is difficult, but we need to understand everything that scripture says. We will not skip over verses because we don't like them, because they don't agree, but we will study every scripture, every verse, and we'll take it and we will understand it and we will exegete it correctly. He gives a couple, James gives us a couple examples as we come near the end. He gives us the example of Abraham with Isaac. He says that he was justified by his works, but faith was active along with his works. If you're not familiar with uh, Abraham and Isaac, Abraham is uh, uh, someone who we would call the father of the faith, the father of Israel. God called him out of the land of Ur and, and brought him to the promised land and said, I will, promise, I will give you a son and you will have descendants and it is from your seed that all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And Abraham didn't trust God, so uh, instead of uh, having a son with his wife, he had a son uh, 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 with uh, a concubine, and they, they had another son named Ishmael, and God said, no, why are you trying to do things your way? I told you, you will have a son. And so he goes back with Sarah, his wife, and they have a son, and they call him Isaac. And as Isaac grows up, Abraham is teaching him the way of the faith. He's teaching him how to give sacrifices, how to love God, how to follow God. They've gone and give sacrifices. They've gone and built altars. He's about 16 years old. God says, Abraham, I want you to sacrifice to me your son. And Abraham, because of his faith, said, okay, he, and took his son and they went up. And just as he was about to sacrifice his son to God, just as he was about to bring a knife down onto his son, an angel appeared and, 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 and bared Isaac. And that's what uh, 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 James is talking about here. <clears throat> he says in verse uh, 21, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up I, uh, his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active all along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the Scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. Abraham believed that God would be a mighty word. Abraham believed God's promise. And his works followed through. It says it was uh, counted to him as righteousness. It's, it shows that his works reflected His faith in God. And he was what? Called a friend of God. And then the second example is Rahab. Verse 25 says, And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. The story of Rahab in Joshua chapter 2 uh, uh Moses had just passed away. Moses just died. Joshua was taking over. He was leading the Israelites into Israel, into the promised land. They had just crossed the Jordan River. They were just about to cross the Jordan River. And they were about, God said, I promise this land to you. And they were going to go in and, and claim it back. They're about to go to war. So they sent out messengers and spies to go spy on uh, the city of Jericho and uh, uh, the people of Jericho heard that spies and messengers were coming in, and so they sought out to kill them. And when Ahab heard this, she had found the messengers, and she hid them and helped them escape. And she says in Joshua chapter 2, verses 9 and 11, she says, I know that the Lord has given you the land. For the Lord your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. She had faith in God. And that results in her works of helping hide the messengers. She had this faith that God would deliver the city to the Israelites. And it resulted in her works. You could see her faith by her works. That's what James is talking about. Can people see our faith by our works? Or are we going to church, and I say this all the time, are we going to church on Sundays? Going to the gathering? Going to, to uh, uh, Thursday night's viewpoint? And are we parting on the weekends? Are we getting high? Are we drinking and getting blacked out drunk? How are we living our lives? Does our life model our faith? Or do we proclaim a faith over here and live a life completely different over there? What does our life look like behind closed doors? Are we showing partiality? Are we judging others? Or are we forgiving others? Are we showing love? Are we welcoming others into our homes? What do our lives look like? Again, I want to reiterate in in Romans 3.28, it says, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. It is not your works that save you. Let me emphasize that over and over again. It is not your works that save you. You are not saved by doing these things. You are saved by the blood of Christ on the cross and that is it. It is because He came, He lived, He died, He rose again, and He has covered it for you. He has done it all. And if you truly believe that, the natural result will show in your life. Believing with genuine personal trust in Christ will bear fruit in your life. That is a promise of Scriptures. And where I'm about to close this in prayers, and I want us to just sit in this last song and meditate on this is how am I living my life? Am I being a doer of the Word or am I merely a hearer? Again, James 1 talks about that. That a hearer of the Word is like a man who looks intently and at himself in a mirror and immediately walks away and forgets. Forgets what he looked like. Are we being a doer of the Word or are we being a hearer of the Word? And if you're being a hearer, how can we help you? How can we encourage you? How can we walk alongside you as your brothers and as your sisters? How can we pray for you? How can we encourage you and lift you up? We're not here to break you down because, oh, you're just here or because you're this, because you're that. No, we're here to encourage you. We're here to challenge you. We're here to love you. I've heard it said all the time that God loves us exactly where we are. But He loves us enough to not leave us where we are. He loves us enough to encourage us to live a life of righteousness. And that is our job as the church. To love everyone exactly where they are, how they are, as they are. But to love them enough to encourage them to live a life of righteousness. And again, that's what we're doing in the book of James. is We're studying practical ways of how to live our lives as Christians. How to live our lives as believers. I'm going to invite our worship team to back up here and I'm going to close this out in prayer as we go into this last song and break out into small drinks. Dear Heavenly Father, just thank you for this evening and thank you for this reminder, this challenge. God, if any of us, any, uh, uh, any of us in here, myself included, God, uh, uh, have this partiality, would you please just reveal that to us and encourage us and, and lift us up? God, that we would just walk along one another as uh, uh, through the hardships of life. God, that we would not just be discouraged by this, but that we would be encouraged by Your forgiveness, by Your grace, because Your mercy triumphs over judgment. God, none of us here are perfect. We make mistakes. We say the wrong things. We do the wrong things. And yet, You love us still. And we thank you for that, God. Again, we thank you that your grace, your mercy triumphs over judgment, triumphs over sin. As Paul says, Paul says, where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. God, let this be a reminder. And again, I pray that as we break out into small groups, you would help us to just be open with one another and encourage one another. God, that we would just be able to share and relate with our struggles. And that we would be able to lift each other up in love, just as you have done for us. Father, we love you and we praise you, and it's in your holy name. Amen. Hey, you've been listening to a Viewpoint sermon on the Viewpoint Podcast Network. If you are interested in hearing more or getting connected to our ministry, make sure to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen, and to follow our Instagram over at viewpoint underscore vvbc. Thanks again for listening. Have a blessed day.